just this year alone, actually beginning in December, you know, Tom Ford spent over $50 million on a non-waterfront house, which was a record. And then recently he did a trade where the, in a deal that was valued at $100 million to literally just trade homes with somebody else, which is kind of crazy. Rush Limbaugh's former estate sold for $155 million, and another home sold for $170 million. And these are all records. You know, they're either records for Palm Beach or they're records for Florida. So it's like there's a slowdown, yes, but people who move to Palm Beach are kind of like it's, – it's kind of like a game. Like they're moving around, they're figuring out what they want, and they're still spending, you know, more money than before. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. Today, we're headed down to sunny South Florida to take a peek inside the lives of the rich and famous. West Palm Beach has been an outlier in the land of luxury home sales. We've actually seen the luxury market crater on a national level over the past nine months or so. And that downturn is caused by the same catalyst tying up deals for regular old home buyers. Yeah, so it's your usual suspects, inflation, high home prices, elevated mortgage rates, and just the general economic uncertainty. Recession is still on the brain. The industry has now baked in a mild downturn by the second half of 2023. So all told, those obstacles have driven wealthy Americans to park their equity in alternative assets. But Palm Beach is a different story. I chatted with TRD's residential bureau chief and our senior reporter in South Florida, Catherine Kalurgis, about why we're still seeing record deals happen in the area. Which is noteworthy because Miami's luxury market certainly took a turn. A Redfin report showed sales in the city slipped nearly 69% year over year in January, and that was above the national decline of 45%. But an hour and a half south, the West Palm Beach market is still popping. So super curious what the differential is there. So we'll get into that in a bit. But first, let's go over the news of last week. The Real Deal is at NARI this week, the National Association of Real Estate Editors Annual Conference. So we have the luxury of recording in person. I know, for the first time. (laughs) We also took home the most awards in The Real Deal's history, so big kudos to the entire editorial team. And to us, Deconstruct placed bronze for best audio real estate report. So thanks, NARI, for the recognition. Speaking of in-person events, The Real Deal hosted its first so-called salon series event last week with the CEO of related companies, Jeff Blau. And I saw that there were some pretty incendiary takeaways. Yeah, Blau didn't hold back. The headline was that Class B office owners should, quote, take what they can and run. Basically, Blau subscribes to the flight to quality narrative. There's still demand for top-notch office properties, but demand for anything older is not going to snap back. That story, of course, does have exceptions. Famously, you know, I've covered Brookfield's downtown LA office properties that have really failed to hold up in a tough market. But Brookfield has said that You know, it's kind of admitted that those buildings may not be considered Class A anymore. And then over in New York, RxR has opted to hand back the keys on office buildings. And it says that it used the Kodak analogy where those buildings are film in a digital world. But on RxR's website, the buildings are characterized as Class A. So up for debate there. Yeah, I had a source talk to me about Brookfield's downtown LA buildings, and they said While these buildings, you know, have all the 
technical classifications of class A. They have really nice amenities. They have really, you know, nice finishings. They're top notch. Is office even considered class A anymore? That's the question. Ooh, yeah, the existential question. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Blau. He tapped Related's mega development Hudson Yards as proof that the flight to quality narrative is playing out in New York. The executive said 80% of its offices in the neighborhood are filled with workers from Tuesday to Thursday. And the firm is so bullish on office that it's actually converting its ground floor retail space into more office. Those who were in New York a few years ago know that Neiman Marcus was once there, but then fled during the pandemic. Blau also said resi conversions were, quote, terrible, in part because it's tough to kick out tenants who are still leasing in buildings. Um, But sort of awkwardly, conversion king Nathan Berman, as some refer to him, was in the audience for that comment. So I heard a lot of heads turned. Dialing in on those troubled office properties, we have also seen banks take a novel approach to bad debt. You had that story, Susanna. Yeah, this was great to report, actually, because I had quotes from workout attorneys saying they'd never seen this happen before. For some context, in previous downturns, so looking at the 90s or 2007, 2008, banks really opted to extend and pretend bad CRE debt. So if an owner had a maturity coming up and looked unlikely to make the big balloon payment coming due or refinance the loan, lenders would say, okay, we'll throw you an extension option so you have more time to pay this off. Banks don't like to take title to hold foreclosed properties. They then have to auction off. And the thought among lenders was markets bounce back. So eventually owners of distressed assets would have the net operating income to cover debt service and bring delinquent loans current, for example. But not anymore. Right. Now, because office is thought to be in secular decline, meaning it's sort of tumbling downhill with little hope of crawling back up, Banks that can shoulder a loss are pushing borrowers to hand back the keys or originate a short sale so they can resolve those troubled buildings. Yeah, I was at a panel at NARI yesterday and someone from CBRE was you know, presenting their research and said that they're not expecting office values to recover for at least nine years. People in the audience, like especially those, you know, I think who probably didn't cover office as much or maybe were on the residential side, actually gasped. <laughs> Anyway, remind us what a short sale is. Sure. So attorneys say they haven't seen these since the 90s, but basically instead of handing the keys back so the bank sells the property, that's known as a friendly foreclosure, it's the borrower that does the selling. The owner will try to get what they can for the property, fork over that cash to the bank, and then the bank will typically forgive whatever that sale doesn't cover. So the bank is agreeing to take a loss. Exactly. And the idea there is building values, as you mentioned, are only going to go down and revenue likely will follow as tenants leave their leases. So that means losses down the line will only be harder for lenders to stomach. They'll be bigger. So banks, life insurance companies, they want to take the hit now. You characterize that strategy as ripping off the band-aid. Yeah, that's right. Or one attorney called the approach cut and run. Okay, so I'm going to run us through some of our top distress stories of the last week. I feel like that should be a recurring segment at this point. Honestly, yeah, it feels like that's all we cover (laughs) right now or a lot of what we cover right now. So in L.A., Oceanwide Holdings, which is based in Beijing, defaulted on an EB-5 loan tied to Oceanwide Plaza. That development is one of the largest unfinished projects in downtown LA. They had planned a Park Hyatt hotel and 500 condos, but it's literally sitting unfinished 
the structure isn't even complete yet. And I know you broke that story. Can you tell us about the EB-5 program briefly? Yeah, sure. So EB-5 is a visa program that offers individuals eligibility for a green card if they invest a certain amount in a U.S. real estate development. For a long time, this was a way for investors to raise money. It was coming from China, but it was a really successful program for a lot of major, major developments. So the EB-5 investors on this deal are owed $157 million. The project has sat there, though, since 2019, and the firm has said it would need more than $1.2 billion to finish construction, and that's in addition to the $1.1 billion it had already spent. In San Francisco, Wells Fargo also agreed to take a $60 million bath on an office tower. The bank picked a buyer for the 13-story building at 550 California Street. They didn't disclose who, but the property is expected to trade for between 43 and $46 million. And the bank bought it for $108 million in 2005. And let's touch on Compass briefly. The firm still has problems with its books, and that's two years after going public. Reporter Harrison Connery had that story. Earning statements show material weaknesses, which means there are questions around the accuracy of Compass's financial reports. So that could mean Compass is misstating its earnings in quarterly reports? Potentially, yeah. So material weaknesses are more common with younger companies, and firms can go public with them, but they're then expected to patch up the holes. Compass says the flaws in its reporting, that they're no big deal. A spokesperson actually called them nonsense. But experts in the space, they disagree. They believe the gaps could be big mistakes in reporting or could amount to fraud, which that would be a big deal. You know, on a related note, on a self-promotional note, our Compass episode nabbed us the Nari win. So give that a listen if you'd like a rundown on the brokerage's troubles in 2022. Definitely. All right, let's get into your chat with Catherine on West Palm Beach. Catherine, thank you for being here and coming on to Deconstruct. Uh, We're both at NARI's conference in Las Vegas this week, um, so I'm glad that we are able to do this in person. Today, you know, I really wanted to talk about what's happening with Palm Beach. So first, can you give us an overview of where Palm Beach is in the South Florida area, what's it, what it's known for, then we can get into the growth that it's seen over the last couple of years. Sure. Thank you for having me. So um, Palm Beach is an island town in Palm Beach County. So it's the northernmost point of our coverage area, which is in South Florida. And it is a mostly residential community where a lot there's a lot of wealth that's been concentrated. And over the past few years, it's just, you know, the real estate market has boomed Um, price growth has been astronomical and we've just seen a lot of investment in the town and the other thing too that's been happening is there's been a lot of development in West Palm Beach which is a city that is just across the bridge um, where the downtown is kind of booming and Steve Ross who is the owner of related companies billionaire owner of the Miami Dolphins has um, just been betting a lot on the office market and investing you know hundreds of millions of dollars in projects there Um, So after, you know, during COVID and after COVID, there was just so much um, money coming into Palm Beach. And so now what we're seeing is like a little bit of that mellowing out, but a lot of like very high profile players buying and selling um, homes and more companies continuing to move, you know, to West Palm Beach. So you spoke a little bit about what happened, you know, before COVID 
you know, at the start of the pandemic and while the market was really hot in 2021, what's happening now? So I think just like any other hot market, the, you know, velocity of sales has slowed down a bit. Year over year, it's significantly down. You know, signed contracts are down. But price growth in Palm Beach continues and you're still seeing records being set, which is interesting. So just this year alone, actually beginning in December, you know, Tom Ford spent over $50 million on a non-waterfront house, which was a record. And then recently he did a trade where in a deal that was valued at $100 million to literally just trade homes with somebody else, which is kind of crazy. Rush Limbaugh's former estate sold for $155 million and another home sold for $170 million. And these are all records. You know, they're either records for Palm Beach or they're records for Florida. So it's like there's a slowdown, yes, but people who move to Palm Beach are kind of like it's it's kind of like a game. Like they're moving around, they're figuring out what they want, and they're still spending, you know, more money than before. So you toured what is currently the most expensive listing on the market in Palm Beach right now. Can you talk about that? What was that property? So it's $218 million asking. So the entire house was really designed for effortless living, very glamorous, but really relaxed and informal. You know, when you walk into the home, you have you know, an open living room, open dining room. Really the main focus is the incredible view. So this is a uh, Calcutta marble, which was, you know, found and sourced in Italy. Um, but all Wolf appliances, huge open kitchen. And, you know, what's really great about the way they design this is when you walk through here, you almost think you're in a vintage home because what new houses have meat lockers? And then this is a guest house where you have three bedrooms and a full kitchen. So again, this could be where the teenagers live, where the kids live, with their nanny. Everything has incredible views. You know, everywhere you look, there's views of the water in every room because you're surrounded by water being on an island. It's 10 Tarpon Isle. It's, a, it's literally its own island that developer Todd Michael Glazer purchased with some of his partners, I think for about $85 million. And instead of knocking down the house that was there, he renovated it and expanded it. Um, so there's a whole new main house. It's got tennis courts, it's got pools, it's got, you know, I feel like <laughs> it was like a dozen washers and dryers, which was interesting, um, you know, up and down on all levels, you know, ceiling to floor marble in the bathrooms, like the primary suite had closets that were like the size of my apartment you know so it's very like it's meant for for kind of the one percent of buyers and it hit the market in November um it is still like the most expensive listing and it was it was very interesting it's they're you know they're betting on you know finding that buyer and I think when you look at some of the recent sales it's not you know it's not out of the question it kind of makes sense but it is a very small buyer pool and so that's the challenge and you interviewed the developer, Todd Michael Glazier, as well as the broker on the listing, Chris Levitt. He's with Douglas Ellum, and you just heard him give Catherine a tour of the property. Here's what they had to say further about the market. What I'm seeing happening is we're getting a lot of new residents in the last four years, and some residents take four years to find their forever be-all house. And they're living in a $40 million house that's worth 80 and they're in no rush. But when Chris or Christian calls up and says, we have a pocket listing, we'll show it to you, they're in their car 
like I said to uh, somebody, people that live in Palm Beach, their sports, tennis, golf, fishing, diving, and looking at real estate. It's a sport, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People enjoy it. They plan their day around it. And they're in hopes of finding a house. Most of the time, they're not going to move from their $40 million that's worth eighty because they're $80 million nicer than what they're looking at, and they don't want to do work. We, we don't even know where this is going. You know, we talk about a $210 million property, $218 million property. In two years, this could be four fifty, and that's the new normal. Because what's happening across the bridge is very unique. To have a place like this, a luxury destination, to have a city that's being built right over the bridge is very rare and unique, and there's nowhere else in the world where that, those two things are going on. I saw Steve Ross at the golf course last week at Emerald Dunes. He said this is Manhattan 40 years ago. But when you cross the bridge, Palm Beach is already 10 times past what New York is now. So this city has to catch up to this. And you've never seen anything build that way before. You're talking about West Palm Beach. West Palm right? Beach is like New York 40 years right. ago. Right, Palm Beach Infancy is... Infancy stages of being built. And Palm Beach is already got a foundation. So you build there, the CEOs are coming here, and they're going to bring their companies, and he's going to provide them the ability to not have, you know, in this whole Bright Line thing, now it's, it's Boca and it's Aventura. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So... Five years from now, that's going to be unrecognizable. There are people who have not, who don't even know they're moving here yet. What's the attraction to Palm Beach? Why not, you know, go to another market? Is it just that you want to be around other billionaires? Is it the quality of property? What exactly makes Palm Beach attractive? I think it's, you know, it's interesting. Like, I'm from Miami, and you go up there, and it's different. It's like a whole different world. It's peaceful it's everything is well manicured you know you you know if you're a billionaire you are surrounded by other billionaires which I think they appreciate the town has moratoriums on construction during certain periods of time you know there's a lot of control to kind of keep it the way it is so I think that's part of the appeal and I also think that like you know with the migration even though sometimes you kind of get sick of hearing about it but with the migration of wealthy people to South Florida this was like the market. Like this is where price growth appreciated the most. Um, people see this as generational. You know, these are generational properties that they they're gonna hopefully you know well if they want they'll keep them forever or they'll trade but they want to stay there. They don't want to go anywhere else. Are you still seeing that migration into Florida? Yeah, you're still seeing it. The I mean the number of deals is definitely way less. There's some price adjustment happening. You know, even in Palm Beach, like I'm referring to a lot of very like top of the market deals. But when you go a little bit below, you know, those like 30 million or maybe even under that, like when you're under that price point, you're seeing some sellers kind of adjust. So I think that's kind of interesting, too, is like if something is not moving ready, it's there's the frenzy that was there before is not there anymore. So that's kind of the shift in the market. Like that's how the slowdown has affected certain areas like Palm Beach. And are there any types of properties that aren't selling? I guess my question is, is everything that is going on the market selling? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, there's, you know, they like a lot of agents talk about how there isn't inventory, but there is inventory. I think it's just like not the kind of inventory that 
buyers are like going to jump at at this point because they've gotten smarter and they know that they have leverage. So there's definitely, there's absolutely like homes that aren't selling. And you could say that across South Florida, but there, you know, I think once the price is right, it, it would go. So it's just depending on like, you know, seller's expectations and pricing. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but you know, a lot of the reason that these record deals are still happening is because a lot of these buyers are paying in cash. They're not tied to mortgage rate fluctuations. Yeah. And I spoke to some agents about this too. And it's, it's true. Like I think when you're above, you know, let's call it 30 million, like it's not, they're not worried about, you know, Bank of America giving them a loan. <laughs> like they can, they can get private loans. They could get a loan at a later time, like if it's a smarter use of their money. But yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of cash. So on the development front, are developers still able to find land to build, you know, more of these extravagant homes that, you know, could one day sell at record prices? I think that's actually like one of the points that's pretty challenging right now, especially in Palm Beach. Like you talk to anybody and if it's a ground up project, it is very delayed. Like the Architectural Commission, which they consider, they call ARCOM, to get approvals is taking forever. And that's part of the reason that Todd Glazer didn't knock down the whole property because he wanted to be able to build this relatively quickly. And he's actually also flipped like some sites instead of developing them for that reason. So I think that like that is pretty challenging. Like I feel like you're going to see more renovations than anything um, just because people don't want to wait that long. Because of that, is there a discount on land? Are people able to find sites for a little bit cheaper? Yeah, some smart buyers are definitely doing that. I spoke to an agent Margit Brandt from Premier Estate Properties, and she was saying that like land prices are starting to come down um, just because of the timeline that I just mentioned. But you know, to build ground up, but um, but anything that is like move and ready, anything that is like completely gut renovated, she said it was like considered like gold. So yeah, absolutely. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking about the summer rental market in the Hamptons. Tune in then.